I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Will Chamberlain. And I'm Amber Duke. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as always, we have a diverse and hopefully provocative set of issues on tap for you today. I'm going to open us up with Xi Jinping's visit to the U.S. and uh, purported thaw that may be occurring here in U.S.-China relations. Inez is going to talk about Osama bin Laden's suddenly reprised letter to America after September 11, 2001. Will will talk about the March for Israel, and Amber will take us home by talking about the White House's observance of a day for transgender, Transgender Remembrance Day. So with that, I'll kick it over to myself here and talk about some of the proceedings that went on in San Francisco last week. There are many different layers that we can talk about in this story, uh, one of them being the kind of Potemkin clearing of San Francisco and uh, the filth in the streets, needles, homeless people. It's amazing what leaders can do in progressive precincts when they want to clean up for the likes of Xi Jinping to come into town, something that Gavin Newsom himself incidentally acknowledged and admitted to in the wake of this uh, APEC conference. Uh, we could talk about, incidentally, Newsom's trip to China that preceded this and how this all kind of looks a little, little bit like a shadow presidential campaign, perhaps, in waiting. Uh, I wrote about the supposed fentanyl deal that was inked between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping which had been much bandied, talked about for months in advance, and has sort of been cast as kind of greasing the skids for a further thaw in the relationship. Uh, that deal and the broader rhetoric and then action of the Biden administration with respect to Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party smacks of a return to, and really we never left under Joe Biden, but an emphasis on the imperative to engage with communist China and that if we just have negotiations and dealings that sudden, somehow this is going to bring about peace and understanding and cooperation, as opposed to the fact that the history of the last 50 plus years shows us that engagement and greater integration with China has always been exploited by communist China to elevate it ultimately and advance its interests to being the most formidable rival we face. And it was predictable, of course, that this would be the Biden administration's return to that disastrous policy. But the fentanyl deal in particular is pretty galling in the litany of deals that could be inked. So essentially, the terms of it are this. China, which hosts the producers of all of the, chemi the uh, preeminent uh, essential chemicals to fentanyl, is supposedly going to clamp down on the factories that produce those chemicals, which kill tens of thousands of Americans every year, in exchange for the U.S. taking off a Commerce Department blacklist, a sub-entity of China's national security, so-called, and domestic surveillance and spying apparatus, which had been blacklisted for its complicity in human rights abuses against Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So, China agrees to turn off the chemical warfare killing machine in its new opium war, essentially, of fentanyl, production of the essential chemicals in fentanyl. And in exchange for turning off that killing machine, it gets its entities, its national security apparatus entities, taken off of Commerce Department blacklist. On, a, on top of this, there is also supposedly going to be a reopening of military to military communications, again, something that China has historically exploited to its own benefit, its ability to study and understand uh, our military installations, practices, et cetera, gain information uh, from the Defense Department and beyond. These communications ceased, by the way, as a consequence of China's decision to terminate them after Nancy Pelosi's quick visit to Taiwan, I believe, you know, a, a year plus ago. Uh, beyond that, what else do we have? Well, we had servile U.S. business leaders bowing to Xi Jinping, actually, I believe, gave him a standing ovation for a multi-thousand dollar a plate dinner, kissing the ring. And the context of this is really important. The context has been that 
U.S. businesses to some extent have truly turned against Xi Jinping, sought to onshore or at least move production capacity away from communist China. China's economy, by all accounts, appears to be ailing. And so this was an essential diplomatic offensive for Xi Jinping to attempt to recapitalize, essentially, and ensure that there continues to be Western funding, essentially, of China's rise to being the preeminent world power. This followed, by the way, on trips of U.S. business leaders to China uh, in recent months as well. Business leaders, U.S. business leaders, have always been the key cog in the CCP's influence efforts in America. They are the key link to influencing U.S. policymakers. So once again, this is a return to the bad old days, essentially, uh, which were reversed in four years under Trump, but we've returned, unfortunately, under Joe Biden. So at the end of the day, I think this looks to me like ultimately a strategic disaster for the U.S. and that this supposedly is going to set the stage for a cooperation. I've even seen at least China portrayed it this way, that there's talk about uh, having some kind of panel with U.S. and Chinese officials on AI development. What could possibly go wrong there? Uh, but happy to open it up to the group for any aspect that you want to hone in on of the proceedings in San Francisco, what they mean going forward, what it means for Taiwan going forward and the U.S. national interest broadly. Sure. I, th I see, two, I, I guess, two points to make about it. One is uh, the obvious bizarre spectacle that happened in San Francisco, where you had uh, the ability of the government there to snap their fingers and suddenly eradicate homelessness and crime and drug use, public drug use and public drug markets, um, which demonstrates that like literally all that's in between our cities returning to being the beacons of beauty and liberty that they were is just simply the political will to, to impose and enforce existing law on the people who are breaking it. God forbid we ever get back to that again. Um, so that was really embarrassing. I hope that maybe Gavin Newsom sees that and decides that his path to election involves actually enforcing the law briefly for however brief a period in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Um, I think the, the second thing that strikes me just listening to your, your points, Ben, was that this is the cost of not being able or willing to enforce our, to secure our Southern border against fentanyl is that we're put in the position of begging the Chinese government to please stop poisoning our citizens. Thank you so much. When really, if we have the capacity, if we wanted to, to simply stop this and to simply, you know, bar this fentanyl from coming in um, and really draconianly punish like those who are responsible for bringing it. But because we don't do that, we're, we're reduced to negotiating away core national security interests in order to protect our citizens from fentanyl poisoning. And I, I don't actually, I'm not certain what the right trade-off is there if that's the trade-off you're forced to make, but I know that we shouldn't have to make it in the first place. Yeah, I guess I, I have a couple comments along those lines. One, I'm not as optimistic as you are, Will, that even are what what all four of us I think would like to see like the real enforcement of the border. I mean the the, the physical nature of, of fentanyl is that you know it's so easy to smuggle because you only need a very very small amount to uh, you know make high and kill a, a lot of people. Um, I think there there is sort of a technological problem here. It's 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 not like smuggling you know millions mm -hmm. of pounds of of pot or cocaine. Um, and so that's that's going to make it difficult. That being said, of course, uh, I agree we could be doing a lot better job than we are. Um, you know, in in, in terms of of uh, obviously like being a Bay Area native, uh, it is extremely infuriating, and it it's an insult as a citizen, right? Because um, the the clear implication and the one that Gavin Newsom pretty much copped to was, you know, we can do this uh, if we want to. We do it for this visit. Um, we won't do it for the citizens of San Francisco, right? Um, you are essentially not important enough uh, to have to uh, deal with these these problems. Um, you, you you are uh, sort of, it's fine that you deal with these problems day in, day out. Um, it's fine that you see your uh, fellow citizens, you know, overdosing and dying on, on the streets. Um, but we can we can quickly clean this up if we if we really want to. Um, so th there, there is this massive uh, admission and insult in it. And in fact, as we often say on this program, Right, it's not hypocrisy, it's hierarchy. To me, this is a clear assertion of hierarchy. Um, it is simply not important to us to do this uh, on on uh, your request, um, but we will do it on others. Um, and then in, in terms of the meeting itself, uh, I don't have too much to add to Ben's, uh, I think, good sum up other than um, 
you know, this seems to me to be a bit of wishful thinking, right? To, to, the world seems like it's on fire. Um, and it would be very convenient for the Biden administration uh, to put this on the back, back burner to try to like calm tensions, right? And, and ratchet down tensions with our primary geopolitical foe uh, when, when in fact it is in their interest to do the opposite while America um, is dealing with with fires around the world. Um, and and so a return to the 90s uh, and, and to a, a kind of accommodationist posture towards China. Um, worth saying, actually, here's, here's one more thing I will say. Um, worth pointing out that that accommodationist posture uh, the position against that 1990s position um, is now bipartisan and the consensus on it is very strong in terms of polling. In other words, both Democrats and Republicans now do see us in something akin to a Cold War with China. There, And that 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 is a consensus that has hardened on uh, both sides of the political aisle. So to the extent that Joe Biden is is flouting it um, and moving more towards the you know 90s, 2000s accommodationist position with China, uh, he will find himself very much on the wrong side of American public opinion at this point. I think my only pushback would be that we have to be careful about a conflation of talking with China and meeting with China as a thawing of relations or as necessarily diplomacy. Your point is well taken about relying on China to stop the flow of fentanyl when we have the tools at our disposal to do that domestically. But I don't think that Biden's meeting with Xi was necessarily that much of a departure from the prior administration, where Trump and Xi didn't have personally a very acerbic relationship. Um, politically and policy-wise, they did. Of course, he launched this massive trade war with China by instituting tariffs on a lot of imports from China. But they met frequently. They talked a lot. He was willing to call him a brilliant man. He was basically willing to acquiesce a bit to the traditional Chinese culture of respect between leaders. Um, and so I, I'm just not sure that this APEC meeting was was that big of a transition from the Biden administration in terms of America's posture towards China. With that, let's go to Inez to talk about Osama bin Laden's letter after September 11th to America going viral. Yeah. Um, so I guess, again, this is a bit of a rebuttal to, to the way that I think a lot of people have been talking about this, particularly in the, the sort of uh, center, center right and center left, I think. Um, so this letter to America that explains Osama bin Laden's reasons for for plotting to kill 3,000 Americans, um, civilians in 9-11, right, uh, has gone viral with a lot of uh, younger people um, basically saying, like, wow, we didn't know this, this, this blew our minds. Um, turns out we're the bad guy again, and uh, Osama bin Laden had a point, right? Um as as sort of disappointing as that is and and scary in terms of its ignorance i think it's entirely predictable um and and the way that i think a lot of folks again in the center right have been talking about it has been to say well this was manipulated by china this is manipulated by the ccp this is this new platform that is encouraging this kind of of ignorance um when in in reality even though all of those things are true um and important and worth considering. I mean, it's certainly worth considering, and perhaps that'll be fodder for the discussion for this segment, uh, how how much uh, America ought to allow access to um, sort of the American American teenager uh, to hostile foreign regimes, right? Um, that this is a definitely a legitimate part of the conversation. But I think it really lets our own institutions off the hook. Um, the reason that this went viral is not just because of a CCP algorithm. Um, it's because the underlying worldview uh, that a generation and a half of Americans have learned from schools, um, from K-12 schools as well, all the way up to university and, and American pop culture at large uh, on, on every level has been that American civilization is bad and evil. That we, we are the bad guys. We are the bad actors in the world. We are the bad actors at home, that everything good about America was built on um, our, our parade of sins, which are unlike the sins of any other nation in their magnitude. Um, and it turns out that actually, you know, reading the words of America's enemies when you're you're already your worldview um, is set in that way and things that are unreasonable suddenly seem to be quite reasonable to you. And I think we're ignoring that baseline and that's backed up by 
at this point, decades of polling, right? Um, decades of polling that show that somewhere in the millennial generation, there's a sharp break. Uh, there's a sharp drop off on the number of, of um, Americans who consider themselves proud to be American on patriotism, right? Um, there's a sharp drop off on their understanding of whether, for example, America is a racist country or not. Um, there's a sharp break somewhere uh, around the, the point where we're talking about people who are now about 35 and under. Um, we see a massive difference. And to me, the obvious explanation for that massive difference on, on um, thing after sort of issue after issue, I think we see the same thing on the polling in Israel. I don't think that's that's an accident. Um, I think those things go, go together very easily. Um, it is again and again and again, we're seeing the result of the worldview that is very consciously uh, indoctrinated to in, in American public education um, from kindergarten through uh, and, and the public doesn't apply as much um, to the to the university level. Um, so a few a few just little data points before I throw it out for discussion. Um, one, um, it's it's uh, I think this is this this really struck me as, as a, a sort of a concrete uh, example of how or concrete data point um, to really show what has happened in the in the k-12 space um, in the last let's say 30 to 40 years so out of the hundred largest school districts in America which make up I can't remember if it's a, it's a, a real majority or it's close to it because if you take about the hundred largest school districts right they have a lot more than uh, their fair share of of uh, students in them right out of those hundred school districts um, not a single one of them has the words patriotism American citizen America none of those words in their mission statements not a single one of them it is not it has not been the mission of our education system to teach. The next generation uh, to be participants in this good American experiment. Um, so anyway, to return to Bin Laden, uh, I, I think that we are letting our institutions off the hook um, when we talk exclusively about the CCP, about this new um, you know social media format of of, of TikTok. Right, um, we are ignoring the fact that we have very clearly on any number of of. Um, sort of issues and premises, you can see the emergence of a worldview that is hostile, um, hostile to your own country, hostile to the ideas, certainly that America was founded on. Um, and we have to we have to confront that reality. We have a generation and a half of students who have learned this worldview from very young. Um, and it's, it's going to be really hard, if not impossible to undo. Uh, so we need to think institutionally in this and not be surprised when uh, Gen Z thinks that Osama uh, bin Laden is somebody uh, worth taking seriously. It's a good point, Inez, and also speaks to this ideology of the oppressor versus the oppressed that somehow there's this revisionist history going around on TikTok where Osama bin Laden is the marginalized victim when he is the basically Nepo baby son of one of the most elite wealthiest families in Saudi Arabia who basically had a personal grievance against the United States because he wasn't allowed to fight on behalf of the Saudis in Kuwait and America got the contract instead. And he is, a, of course, also a religious fanatic who was angry that the U.S. was involved when they didn't share um, his penchant for Sharia law and waging holy war against the rest of the world. So it's pretty incredible that because he's like a brown guy in the Middle East, he's suddenly, you know, victim number one on behalf of the left's worldview. And to your point on institutions, it's not just the education system either. I think it's also an indictment of the foreign policy establishment because there are legitimate grievances and legitimate gripes to have about American foreign policy. It just so happens that this portion of the letter that's floating around on TikTok is not one of them. So I'll be really brief. Uh, all points very well taken. And I think this is an instance of it's both. Yes, obviously, you know, probably most of us to, to an extent at least would agree TikTok is a Chinese Communist Party backed platform and it's used to propagandize and it probably ought to be banned. Uh, but of course, the algorithms broadly on social media platforms go both ways. Bad ideas can proliferate and good ideas ostensibly should be able to proliferate as well. So, you know, one aspect of this is the platform is, but the, the broader point is the messages, there would be no receptivity to the messages had our institutions not brainwashed people into this mind virus of the West as the oppressor par excellence and done a disservice to the country 
on a generational basis here. You know, the one point I'll emphasize again, and I've raised this quote before, and I'll raise it again. If the kids like bin Laden, they'll really like Yasser Arafat. So again, August 1969, here's Yasser Arafat in an interview to Free Palestine as a, the name of the publication. Quote, our struggle is part and parcel of every struggle against imperialism, injustice, and oppression in the world. It is the part of the world revolution which aims at establishing social justice and liberating mankind. Those words could come out of the mouth of any tenured radical on a campus today, any of the kids on TikTok, probably hundreds of people within the State Department and beyond. So it's society-wide here, this mind virus. But it's worth noting also that in the Islamic supremacist world, they know how to play to the West prejudices. They're very good at waging information warfare. They know that they have force multipliers, dupes, useful idiots, and then true believers on our streets. And they've been catering to them for decades. Yeah, I mean, I, again, it's not a surprise. Uh, you know, we've embraced this totalizing morality where the only real moral question is who is the oppressed group and who's the oppressor group. And it can't be surprising that the morality of Hamas and Al-Qaeda is just a, you know, one step further removed from the morality of BLM and Antifa. Um, that much is true. And certainly, I mean, it, it actually, this particular instance of people finding the bin Laden letter persuasive can't be surprising in a world where we saw them applaud the atrocities perpetrated by Hamas. I mean, if you actually do a side-by-side -side comparison of what Hamas did in Israel versus what the bin Laden terrorists did in New York, you could, I think, make a fairly reasonable argument that what was done in Israel was substantially worse uh, per, you know, per cap on a per capita basis, at which much more in person, brutal, barbaric, and horrific on an individual basis versus the sort of indiscriminate targeting of civilians generally by the the terrorist attacks but nothing so brutal as you read about you know the horrific rape and you know butchery um done by per individuals in individual homes so uh can't really be that surprising and it's just a general indictment of the morality we've allowed to fester in this country that's probably as good a segue as any to the counter forces in this country let's go back to you will to talk about the march for israel yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, last week, I was in Washington, D.C. attending the March for Israel. I had a couple other things going on that were bookending that Tuesday. So I stuck around. And that's also why I missed last week's podcast. But um, enough said there, uh, a very, very impressive feat of organization. I think the, the numbers that I saw bandied about in the media were 296,000 attendees, which was truly remarkable. Um, when I got there, the entire place was full and yeah, again, just to describe the mass, I mean, if you know, you can see a picture from above and realize that there's a lot of people there from but actually being on the ground um, where I was, which was an area of the mall that was basically full of people, uh, you could not see the stage. Like, I'm not talking about you couldn't see the speakers on the stage. I'm talking you couldn't see the stage. The stage was so far away that you needed to use binoculars just to see the stage itself. I never was able to identify any individuals on the stage. I think where I was in a place, again, that was totally full the it was about two-thirds of a mile away from the actual main stage of the the event um eight four different layers of of televisions and speakers to broadcast what was going on on the stage two-thirds of a mile away so um an incredibly impressive organizational feat by the american jewish community and friends of israel to show up um and demonstrate their support i think you know there's been a lot of black pills on uh you know, social media, for example, about how broadly popular on TikTok the pro-Palestine side has been and how much general sympathy there is for Palestine and for despite these actions by Hamas and hostility to Israel. But it's a white pill to remember that, OK, yes, there is a very large one. There's a very large Jewish community in the United States and two, general public opinion in the United States is still broadly supportive of Israel. Um, that's why you had people speaking at the March for Israel like both of the leaders of the house different parties and both of the you know the senate majority leader and the senate minority leader so they all shook their hands they were all pro-israel um there's still a lot of support for the country uh, van jones was there speaking uh van jones got booed when he tried to ask for a ceasefire another positive you know white pill moment you know credit to van jones for showing up at something like that but read the room brother uh so that was that was also positive. But I mean, again, it was a remarkably peaceful protest, not mostly peaceful, but truly, in fact, fully peaceful. Uh, D.C. afterwards with a sea of blue and white. And it, it's a positive thing. And I think, you know, going forward, what that suggests is, you know, even if there are, you know, a bunch of apparatchiks in the Biden administration, these young people, you know, growing up on TikTok and whining about what their bosses are doing, I think there is 
you know, at least publicly, the administration is still going to come out to come out in support of Israel. I might find Blinken and what the State Department's doing obnoxious and what they're pressing for obnoxious. But, you know, we're still, you know, our government, thankfully, for now, is still going to be on the side of, generally going to be on the side of Israel. And I think that was, you know, and there's a lot of voters in the United States that actually do care about this issue. One thing I've mentioned to other people that uh, I think has not been discussed enough is that Israel is a particularly good political issue for the Republican Party. Um, it splits the Democrat base right in half. Uh, the Democrat politicians are not in line with their young voters on this issue. Um, it's something like, I think, more Democrats support Palestine than Hamas. But on the Republican side, it's completely one-sided with almost everybody supporting um, supporting the Israelis. So, yeah, I was I had a positive uh, impression of the March for Israel. I was very impressed by the organization and was, you know, a nice white pill in a sea of black pills. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it seems like the, these two segments went together really, really well. Right. And I actually just got off a, a discussion about anti-Semitism in America um, on my own podcast. Uh, and we ended up just talking about America and about the feelings that Americans and younger generations have towards America. I don't think that that is an accident. Um, I think these two issues are very much tied together uh, because they both stem from this, this anti-Western uh, worldview and this oppressor-oppressed dichotomy, as, as Amber said uh, in the last segment. Um, so I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's an accident that uh, the, the pro-Palestinian protests tear down American flags. Um, I don't think it's an accident that the pro-Israel um, protests raise the American flag. I, I think that these things, uh, in fact, do hang together as, as a cohesive uh, ideology and in a cohesive uh, alliance in many ways. Um, both things can be true, right? Uh, that that Americans have shown a remarkable, uh, in the history of the world, sort of resistance to uh, typical anti-Semitic sort of tropes or attitudes. Um, the average American is very much not anti-Semitic, very much pro-Israel. Um, and uh, I think that's exactly what was so unfair. I got into a uh, fight with Gad Saad, who's kind of an IDW-type um center left ish person um, but anti-woke um over using a stereotype about what he called roscoe from arkansas right and saying basically roscoe from arkansas is is anti-semitic and um that's very very much not true in america in a way that is remarkable and worth remarking on i guess the literal definition of, of remarkable um it's something that uh this this country has been virtually unique in um and something that i think american jews have uh should be incredibly grateful for. Um, that being said, both things can be true. There's a wide margin of support for Israel um, in America. Uh, there is also, as there is on every other one of these issues, right, uh, a, a rising generation and a half of people who have very much the opposite perspective as it hangs together in their worldview um, that way. Um, I guess the, the 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 both white pill and black pill is all these issues I think hang together. So we 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 will, um, in some sense, uh, all all our enemies are in the same basket. Um, you know whether we're talking about uh, patriotism, America, and Osama bin Laden, or whether we're talking about anti-Semitism and and Israel. Uh, the the fate of of the one issue will decide the fate of the other one uh, in in American domestic politics. So these things are are going to rise and fall together. Um, so it's it's both true that that basic support still exists. We should be very grateful for it um, and recognize from where it comes from. Um, and uh, also true that these polls are extremely worrying. The 500 Democrats uh, who signed that letter, um, in the, the staffers, congressional staffers, do represent uh, the rising future of the Democratic Party in a way that uh, we, we should not ignore. Just anecdotally, I... I accidentally ended up in D.C. during both the pro-Palestinian and pro-Israel protests, um, not to attend either one, but I just happened to have meetings downtown or what have you. And the tenor between the two was so remarkably different. I mean, the pro-Palestinian individuals were racing their cars down M Street in Georgetown with their flags hanging out and shouting at people on the street. Um, large groups gathered on corners, basically trying to intimidate people who walked by into saying that they supported Palestine. 
And then the um, is Israeli pro-Israeli protesters, remarkably peaceful, kind, friendly, just so very different um, in terms of the tone of the two marches. And I had never heard that Inez, that that Roscoe from Arkansas um, analogy that you brought up and also still anecdotally, but I grew up in working class rural America. And all of these tropes that we hear from young people and um, like people of color in New York City about Jews controlling the media or the means of capital or what have you in America were not anything that I ever heard until I got to college. Um, these concepts didn't exist where I was from. The idea of being anti-Semitic was like a non-starter to the point that it didn't even exist. So I, I'm really surprised that God said that because I, I just, it doesn't track with my experience. Yeah, I'd be willing to wager that Roscoe from Arkansas is infinitely more philo-Semitic than XYZ person from any cosmopolitan enclave in America. And it obviously shows in the streets. It shows in the protests and activism. I think what we saw on display in D.C. was, to some extent, the uh, chasm that exists between where the institutions are broadly and where the American public is. And you see that in the way I think the Biden administration tries to triangulate in terms of its rhetoric backing and to some extent substantive backing of Israel in terms of uh, munitions sales and provisions versus, as I've talked about, the bear hug, which I would argue is, is turning into a mauling in many respects. And I'll talk about in final remarks a little bit this uh, this hostage deal that is apparently about to be executed. Uh, but the American people are not broadly with the left and the left is the ascendant part of the democrat party it may not be a majority in terms of elected representatives although it actually is a pretty substantial part of it if you look at the size of the and makeup of the congressional progressive caucus for example you're talking roughly half of democrats in the house uh, that is the ascendant worldview it is the power in the party it must be managed by the Biden administration, who's perceived by that flank as too pro-Israel, ironically. Um, so, but there's a difference between who has the loudspeakers and who sits in the institutions of influence and where, again, the American public is. And where the American public is, is much more with the pro-Israel rally in D.C. than the mobs outside of Penn Station in New York or on XYZ elite college campus. So a healthy reminder, once again, I guess, of the chasm between our elites and our institutions and the actual people who they're supposed to serve, but don't. Oh, and last point I'll make on that is just note still, Senate Democrats summarily rejected the vote on $14 billion in military aid that night. So Chuck Schumer, who attended that rally, talks about how uh, how wedded he is to defending the sacred U.S.-Israel bond, then, like many Democrats in the Senate, all of the Democrats, I believe, because it was a party-line vote, rejected Republican senators' effort to put the $14 billion aid package to a vote. And that speaks volumes about the optics that the Democrats want to put forth versus their substantive positions. And on that note, uh, let's turn it over to Amber to talk about a completely different subject, uh, the White House's emphasis on uh, transgender Remembrance Day. Absolutely. So this came up during the White House press briefing on Monday, and Karine Jean-Pierre marked this um, celebration is not quite the right word, but this um, day of remembrance, the Transgender Day of Remembrance that was started in 1999 by a transgender activist. And in her statement about this day, she said, we grieve the 26th transgender Americans who were killed this year. Year after year, we see that these victims are disproportionately Black women and women of color. And immediately you say 26, aren't there supposedly millions of transgender individuals in the United States? And yes, according to best estimates, there's anywhere between one to two and a half million transgender Americans. So 26 killed so far this year would actually make their murder rate lower than the American average. But when you actually dig into these numbers even further, you find that these are not all transgender people who were murdered because they were trans, which is obviously the implication 
of this day of observation. Um, one of the individuals is named Devani Jeray Johnson, who was shot by a security guard after trying to murder that guard with a fire extinguisher and a screwdriver. So it's like the George Floyd level of uh, honoring individuals because they serve a particular narrative and not because they were necessarily um, people to actually be memorialized. And it's interesting to me that when I looked into the history of the Trans Day of Remembrance, it didn't even start with a victim of anti-trans violence, as, as the left puts it. It was an individual who is a, uh, a man who identifies as a transgender woman. And the murder of this individual is still unsolved to this day. And this person's family, um, you know, I'm not going to judge them for the things that they say in their grief, but is insistent that this was an individual who was killed because they were trans and that they were targeted because they were trans. And as there's no indication of motive or suspect, there's no evidence that that's the case. And so I think this speaks to this larger problem on the left and particularly the LGBTQ plus activists that they will use manipulated data and even just flat out false science to prop up these very fantastical claims of there being a trans genocide or trans epidemic of violence in the United States. After the recent report came out about this number of trans individuals who were killed, um, the human rights campaign described it indeed as an epidemic of violence against transgender and gender nonconforming people and described it as a national tragedy and a national embarrassment. Um, Kelly Robinson, the president of HRC, said each of the lives taken is the result of a society that demeans and devalues anyone who dares challenge the gender binary. Um, and this is the type of emotional blackmail that often comes out of not just the transgender movement, but I think the left writ large. Um, on the trans question specifically, we're told that if you don't allow children to undergo sex changes, then they're going to commit suicide. Um, or if you don't affirm people in their gender, you're going to drive them to suicide. Um, apparently now, if you don't affirm people in their gender, you are complicit in the murder or killing of transgender people as well, regardless of whether or not their transness had anything to do with them actually being killed. Um, and then further on the left, I think generally um, there's this idea that if you don't support leftist positions, that you are not compassionate or not empathetic to the world. Um, so the fact that this was recognized at the White House was very troubling to me, um, not only because it, it, the whole concept of the trans day of remembrance is not rooted in fact, but because repeatedly we see that the White House is incredibly willing to embrace these very radical ideas um, of biology and science and society writ large that simply don't comport with the truth. And to have that come from an official White House press briefing um, is an indication perhaps of just how far we've shifted in our acceptance of these very radical ideas. Um, yeah, totally, totally agree, Amber. There, there's this this weird dichotomy, right, where uh, whereby actual violence um, is transformed into resistance or excused, uh, but then no matter how tenuous the connection, um, like so no matter how distant and and how many steps along the way you have to assume to try to connect any incident of real violence uh to this general societal commitments and blah 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 um that that doesn't matter um it's used i think you used the exact right phrase it's emotional blackmail it's it doesn't have a basis in fact you just laid out it doesn't have a basis in fact in terms of of the idea that people are being you know, in large numbers targeted for violence uh, because they, they're a man, they identify for, as a woman or vice versa. Um, this is a population that uh, has higher rates of all kinds of, of both mental and physical problems. Um, actually, Jay Green over at Heritage has a, a great study showing, um, and I think you're right to link this also to the idea, if they can't use homicide as the emotional blackmail, the next thing on the list is suicide as emotional blackmail. Um, and in fact, Jay Green at Heritage has a very a cleverly designed, a very well-designed study uh, showing that actually loosening the restrictions on things like cross-sex hormones and, and surgery um, to, to uh, minors actually is correlated with an increase in the suicide rate, not a decrease of the suicide rate that you would expect if, in fact, 
um, these horrible transphobic ideas about not mutilating children uh, in an attempt, a quixotic attempt to change their sex, um, were, were actually reading, leading to more suicides rather than fewer. So, um, you know, again, uh, it's worth calling out. This is obviously really um, obvious every time there's any kind of mass violence or mass shooter, right? Uh, no matter how tight the ideological connection when it's inconvenient for the left, it's it's always, um, you know, that is that's always sort of uh, slowed off as 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 not important uh, to violence, um, the, the connection between leftist ideas and violence, um, which is much tighter. <laughs> uh, and then on on the flip side, if there is any connection, no matter how tenuous or rambling to anything um, on, on the right, um, you can be sure that that will be used as the primary motivation for violence uh, by by the media. So, yes, there's obviously a. a, a very convenient standard of how close a connection one needs between ideas and words and violence. Um, and that that's a connection that is uh, basically always designed to come out uh, in, in favor of the left, as we've said many, many, many times. It's, it's not, it's not about hypocrisy. They don't really care what the standard is, right? It's, it's, it's only about advancing the leftist ideas and using um, homicide, suicide, and every other type of emotional blackmail to do so. As I see it, the purpose of this day is to say that Americans are morally bankrupt and evil, so you better submit to the radical gender ideology agenda or else. Um, I, I think to try to turn, I guess, uh, lemons or anti-lemons into something of lemonade here, what the focus ought to be in response to this day is, uh, what about empathy for uh, those who have been mutilated and now regret it. Uh, what about empathy for, you know, we could talk about those suffering from gender dysphoria, which I guess you're probably not allowed to say under the radical transgender ideology. What about the kids who have been turned against their parents and what this ideology has done to families that the Biden administration continues to elevate uh, throughout its policies by executive order and beyond? Uh, and then what about also the doctors who have been canceled for actually trying to provide healthcare to their patients or for pursuing lines of study that you're now not allowed to pursue uh, as, as was, I think, well-documented in uh, the book uh, when Harry became Sally, if I'm getting that title right and not botching it. So that's why I think to turn this on its head and put the focus back on those who are the uh, premier endorsers of this ideology, what about all the lives ruined in the wake and what it's done to families and what it's done to the sexes writ large. Yeah, I, I just pulled up the Wikipedia because I was curious and the, the list is list of people killed for being transgender. And you'd figure Wikipedia would be over-inclusive on this issue given their leftward bias, leftward bias. In the last four years, it looks like they've identified 13 people in the world killed that identifiable to being transgender. That's just really not substantial i mean obviously any death is any murder is a tragedy but the not substantial in comparison to the overall number of murders that happens every day around the world um i think it's ultimately a method of you know trying to garner sympathy and and also distract from the uh very troubling and uh obnoxious advocacy that the trans movement has been doing lately when it comes to ensuring that children have access to hormone treatments which is just an insane thing to be doing um and so i think the rest of my colleagues in the panel have already nailed that down pretty well. So on that note, let's uh, go to parting shots and let's not all jump at uh, making the first parting shot here. Well, sure, I'll just go ahead and start then. Uh, I think the uh, the the Roscoe from Arkansas meme that, that you know, we, we talked about it, I think Inez hit on it and another people have discussed it. I do think it's actually really obnoxious and I think it's an important thing that maybe a lot, you know, I'm, I have both um, WASP and Jewish heritage, so I sort of see both sides of this, but I think it's, there can be a blind spot among American Jews about the extent to which they sort of um, kind of prototype the our standard issue anti-Semite as like a white working class conservative. And that's a, that's a trope, you know, and it shouldn't be done. And you should notice that as a trope. And it's a particularly counterproductive and obnoxious trope because it is most white working class conservatives are often some of the most pro-Israel people around see all the American like uh, farmers, not farmers, but cowboys actually going to Israel to help uh, maintain the farms when the Israelis are off fighting in the war. 
Um, I think American Jews need all the allies we can get at the moment. I think it's really, really obnoxious to pretend that the problem is white working class conservatives when you've got all, you know, those are not the people who are showing up at these pro-Palestine rallies in D.C. and menacing passersby. Yeah, I guess um, I had the same final thought uh, in, in defense of Roscoe. Um, no, I, I, I think uh, this is incredibly important. Uh, it, it, it has been one of these uh, divides that I, I frankly think um, on the side of liberal Jews just doesn't have a basis in reality at all. Um, it's charitably, it's uh, uh, something imported from sort of a European history that doesn't exist in the United States. Uh, less charitably, it just goes along with a larger leftist project of condemning, you know, condemning Roscoe as, as a irredeemable bigot on, on uh, you know, every, every level, including anti-Semitism. Um, but it's, it's, as you say, it's a trope, but it's not even a trope because generally is like stereotypes, right? Usually have some some basis in fact, even if over applied, right? This this one is actually an, an anti-stereotype in the sense that there's no basis in which this is true. It is less true um, about Roscoe than it is about virtually any other group in American society. Um, and and so it's it's a, not just a trope, but a completely false one. And I think something that's endured uh I think inappropriately for many decades, but something that really needs to be put aside now, especially as I believe there really will be, um, there, there is and, and will be a, a real anti-Semitic threat in America um, in, in a way that there has not been in the past, but that's not because of Roscoe from Arkansas. That's, that's because of our, a combination of, of, um, of immigrants from countries that uh, hold hostilities towards Jews and on, on the domestic side, uh, a rising generation that has been taught to hate America and our allies um, and, and fit into this oppressor oppressed woke worldview that we've talked about many, many times. Um, so that's, those are where the real threat, uh, if, if, if one is Jewish and American, those are, that's the real anti-Semitic threat rising in America and focusing even tangentially on on Roscoe um, seems to me to not just be something that's annoying now, but is is uh, suicidally taking your eye off of of the actual threat, and in fact training it on on the one group uh, of non Jews in perhaps in the world, actually for sure in the world um, that has been the most stalwart defenders of Jews and Israel. Uh, it's, it's just sing singularly unfair. I would also just note that I've never even met anyone named Roscoe, but <laughs> my final thoughts are, are a little bit more on this. I'm using issue. it. That's what that God, <laughs> yeah. God said, said, and, um, right. <laughs> and some people took it as an insult itself, which I, I actually found kind of silly. Like, I don't care, you know, you can, you can use a name, but the problem is that it's false, but yes, right. it's, it's a exactly. made up name by God said. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, my final thoughts are a little bit more on this issue of trans violence, because I think another important point here in terms of this claim that the trans community is subject to disproportionately higher rates of violence is that um, we have a situation here where there's a group of people who um, tend to put themselves in risky positions, um, whether it's through promiscuous behavior or prostitution or uh, drug abuse that can lead to higher rates of violence. And it ha doesn't have anything to do with transgender identity, but in many cases, the choices that are made. And the response from the left on pointing out this objective reality is often, well, these people are driven out of their homes because, um, because they're transgender. And so they become homeless and they fall into this behavior. And I think the more obvious explanation is that the high rates of mental illness in uh, with people struggling with gender dysphoria um, is a much more likely explanation for why they end up in these dire straits. Um, and we even can go back again to this first individual who marked the transgender day of remembrance. We see that um, this person was actually really well accepted by their family and um, their family to this day is seeking answers about the murder. Um, and the best evidence to date in this murder case is that this transgender individual was often frequenting nightclubs and bringing home strangers um, that they had met at the nightclub. And so I think that's just a broader important point to make about why some communities might have higher rates of violence against them as others. Um, 
jumping to the identity being the cause and not necessarily the behavior. And that's not to victim blame, but um, not jumping to behavior, I think misses um, really the broader point and also a point that could potentially save some of these people from getting into these situations. On an entirely different note, uh, we're recording this on Tuesday, and it appears, uh, as I alluded to earlier, that there's going to be some sort of ceasefire slash hostage trade, abductee trade between Israel and Hamas. The parameters of it are not entirely clear. Obviously, this is all in flux and subject to change, but it appears essentially that there's going to be something like a one to three ratio of Israelis released, seen numbers of around uh, 50 to 80 individuals released. Uh, and then on the other side, uh, purported minors and women, Palestinian Arabs who are held in jail in Israel, uh, being released in exchange for the hostages on a during a five-day ceasefire where I believe that as it's been laid out, there's going to be an increase in a fuel supply, I believe, and also uh, other so-called humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza during this time. Uh, there may also be, supposedly after this five-day ceasefire, then subsequent daily ceasefires where supposedly 10 hostages will be released uh, per day during that ceasefire period. Again, this is all in flux and fluid right now, uh, but my initial response is that this, I believe, is going to end up disastrously for Israel. The entire history of the Israel-Arab conflict is one of uh, Israel engaging in hostage trades that end up disproportionately hurting Israel ultimately. Exhibit A right here is uh, Hamas's Black Sabbath attack, which supposedly Sinwar was one of, if not the masterminds behind the attack. He was held by Israel as a prisoner and was exchanged for a shalit previously. Uh, and that's one of you know thousands who have been released over time. Uh, beyond, obviously, the uh, it, this sets a precedent, obviously, that hostage taking is once again effective and can even be used to control Israel's war cadence in a wartime situation like this, which of, of note, Hezbollah, of course, is going to see this then as an imperative to the extent it engages in offensives from the north to also seek to try and take hostages to be able to control cadence of war. Uh, beyond that, obviously, the ceasefire is only going to strengthen Hamas at a time where it's clearly ailing, and that's only the, that's the only reason it's coming to the table right now. Hamas will be able to resupply, recuperate, shift its positions potentially, even though supposedly Israel is going to be able to maintain eyes on what Hamas operatives are doing during this time. And I suspect that this could very easily lead to then pressure to maintain a ceasefire after the supposed five days are up. This may be, end up being the two weeks, 15 days to stop the spread that turns into something infinitely longer than that, while international pressure ratchets up on Israel as well. Hamas claims it's a rational actor and it's willing to come to the negotiating table, et cetera. And this could potentially ultimately lead to the non-degradation and destruction of Hamas as an entity in Gaza. And last but not least, of course, this was a U.S. brokered deal, supposedly. So there are going to be many who are going to make the case that this looks like a pretty good trade from a ratio perspective relative to past deals, or the fact that, look, Hamas is ailing. This is going to allow hostages out, and then Israel will be able to resume its offensive. But you have you can't you can't evaluate this as if it's happening in a vacuum. It has to be viewed in the broader context of a war here and in a broader context of history. And I believe this creates a this creates a slippery slope that could ultimately redound to Israel's severe detriment and ultimately to the detriment of the Western world as a whole and in particular the U.S. Uh, so on that pessimistic note, we'll pick that up maybe next week and hopefully I'm proven wrong by events that play out. But on that note, on behalf of Will and as and Amber, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad. Mm -hmm.